Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. As you may be noticing, we're taking our annual Memorial Day weekend break a week late this year. Why? Well, we wanted to feature Tamara Johnson's Nasher Windows exhibition in Dallas last week. And because every weekend feels like a holiday weekend these days, why not, right? So this week, we bring you a Clips episode featuring Mark Dion. This week, Amazon Prime Video debuted The Perilous Texas Adventures of Mark Dion, an hour-long documentary showing how Dion retraced the steps of four 19th-century Texas explorers, Sarah Ann Lily Hardinge, Charles Wright, John James Audubon, and Frederick Law Olmsted, for an exhibition that's on view at the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth. The film, which premiered on Texas PBS stations last month, was directed by Eric Clapp and produced by Maggie Adler. That exhibition I mentioned is also titled The Perilous Texas Adventures of Mark Dion. Curated by Adler, it features both Dion's discoveries and related works from the Eamon Carter's collection. The exhibition's closing date is TBD due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Eamon Carter has published an extraordinary, funny, and smart book in association with the project. In some ways, it's an adaptation of, and Dion and Company's updating, of Olmsted's famous Texas travel diary. The Perilous Texas Adventures of Mark Dion is published by the Eamon Carter and distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for about $40. You've got to go get it. It's one of the best books of the year. Dion works at the intersection of art, natural history, history, and anthropology. His work examines, and often critiques, humanity's approach to nature, landscape, and science through witty address of scientific methodologies and installations that often have roots in Victorian-era presentation. Mark Dion after the break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Atkins's work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects, from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Around the world, art museums, as community gathering sites, are making difficult decisions in the face of COVID-19. In this new two-part episode of the Getty's Art and Ideas podcast, President Jim Cuno gathers six U.S. museum directors for a candid discussion of the pandemic's effect on their museums. These insightful conversations address a wide range of topics, from the logistical challenges of how to reopen to the role of museums in society. Part one features Max Holine of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Kaywin Feldman of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC, and James Rondo of the Art Institute of Chicago. In part two, hear from Matthew Teitelbaum of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Anne Philbin of the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and Timothy Potts of the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Art and Ideas podcast can be found now on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Music. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Mark Dion, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's marvelous to be back. We got to start with the cover of the catalog slash book that accompanies the show because it's extraordinary. It's, it's, it's green and gold. And there, shining out of the middle of the cover 
surrounded by a scorpion and a deadly spider, is your shining cowboy-hatted mug. How did you come to be on the cover of the book, and how do you feel about, about your celebrity turn, as it were? Yeah, you know, when the book first came to me, and I saw the cover, and I opened it up, and saw perhaps more images of myself in the book than any other catalog or book that I've done, and, and I've done a fair amount, I, I just had to put it down. I, I had to put it down and, like, leave it alone for a few days, you know. I've always been very conscious of the power of the artist's image, in a way, and something early on I realized, you know, as a young artist, was the way that people would take images of, of the artists I was interested in, people like Boyce and Smithson, and would sort of privilege these images of them in the process. And, and in my early work, I thought very much about that as being a powerful thing, that be, as being something that you could actually play with and take advantage of, you know, because I was very interested in this idea of, of taking on different roles in some way, challenging mastery by changing those roles. So making it very clear that in a sense that, that I, my character was very much like Flaubert's characters of, of Bovard and Pécochet. You know, I was working my way through intellectual traditions in a way that no one could possibly do. But they failed and you succeeded. Yeah, well, no, I failed too. But I want that failure to be, you know, to me that failure is the critique of mastery, right? Clearly no one can be an ichthyologist and a watercolorist and a botanist and, a, and an art conservator, you know, that um, I take on these roles, which are always punching above my weight. And then early on, there was a very performative aspect where, where the viewers could kind of see me trying my best, but often failing at mastering these disciplines. So I kind of understand the power of presenting the artist. But in this sense, because I, you know, I didn't design the catalog, and although I had my uh, approval of it, you know, I, I think the the weight of myself, which is always myself as the person and my sort of artist persona, really do come a little bit uncomfortably close for me in this catalog in a, in a kind of interesting way. Oh, yeah. It's not just interesting. It's the most smart plus entertaining catalog I've read in a while, if only for the picture of you shopping for cowboy hats. Yeah, me shopping for cowboy hats waiting in line to use the ATM because I don't know how to drive and I have to stand behind the cars. I have to stand in the middle of a line of cars. You know, so again, I, I want to, um, you know, because the exhibition itself is really focused on the model of the artist traveler, the sort of artist explorer, I also want to, in some way, take that grand narrative of triumph and domination and turn it on its head. As often, I, I, you know, I sort of use somewhat comic failure as a way of doing that, in a sense, in the, in the same way that I kind of slip in and out of these characters. And so I, I think the book does that very well. On the other hand, you know, there's lots of journal excerpts that are really my journal and are not written in an, in an ironic way. I mean, they are very sincere accounts at the end of the day. Well, let's let's pivot from from the book as object and and crack and good read. Speaking of the book, one last note of praise: the tone that curator Maggie Adler takes throughout it is. I mean, I just kept laughing laughing out loud over over and over again. I mean, it's just pitch perfect. So the 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 broader project, as I mentioned in in, in the show intro, is that you are engaging with travels across Texas made by four people: naturalist Charles Wright naturalist, illustrator, artist, John James Audubon, ubiquitous polymath, Frederick Law Olmsted, <laughs> and Sarah Ann Hardinge, the least known of the four, the least well-known of the, of, 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 of the four people who, who traveled across Texas in pursuit of land. She was, I don't know if promised is quite, 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 the, quite the word promised or, or that her family had earned through service in the U.S. military. So before we get to those four and how you engaged with each of them, the project and indeed the introductory essay of the catalog position you and the entire project as a kind of uh, modern day address of both the mid 19th century tradition of American exploration. So think of boundary surveys or railroad cum scientific surveys and 
surveys that were even more pointedly part of the American Imperial Project, um, such as those that combed Western Mexico for mountain passes through which American armies might be able to travel. What about remaking or engaging the early to mid-19th century explorer tradition particularly drew you to it? Well, you know, one aspect, of course, is that is the hosting institution is the Ammon Carter, right? So the Ammon Carter is a kind of interesting place that really starts as a, a cowboy museum founded by a real American patriarch, in a sense. And then it's better well-rounded by his daughter who takes over and really turns it into a sort of legitimate museum of American art, which does have a sort of focus on the frontier, it's interesting to me, like how many frontier and pioneer art museums there are in America. And, uh, you know, it seems like the, the, as the frontier does get pushed, these museums all sort of claim to be the frontier museum. You know, and, and I think that Maggie is, Maggie Adler, who was my curator and, and very much a collaborator on this project in many ways, you know, I, I think she's really interested in finding new ways to think about this collection for the for the public. I mean, I, scholars have thought about these images and these characters and these deeds very differently for a long time, right? But I, I think that isn't necessarily translated in the way that these collections have been displayed. That kind of critical perspective, the perspective that sees manifest destiny as, as the, one of the most pernicious ideas in the Western tradition. And that also, in some way, we're interested in undercutting the narrative of machismo and certainty and destiny that is inherent in this frontier discourse, right? So how can we, in some way, use contemporary practice, contemporary critical practice, and tactics like, like humor to, in some way, erode that pernicious ideology that that these museums kind of embody. I mean, I think that brings up one of the most interesting aspects of the show, because the era of exploration and empire, uh, to coin a phrase from a fam famous book title, that period of the traveling scientist or artist or journalist or land seeker, sometimes many of those things at one time, was, you know, was America's imperial period or most imperial period. Each of the four figures whose travels you not reenact, but at least revisit, were absolutely participants in the imperial project. How, as you approached this project and then as you did it, did you address that history, especially around uh, displacement and dispossession? Well, I think, you know, approaching it with a certain amount of humility, right, is, is step number one. The notion was, when we we're conceiving of the exhibition, was that let's look at a, a group of Yankees who came here with their own preconceptions and remarkable prejudices, and also were, were put through a kind of trial, right? And, and didn't have the greatest time, and in some cases had really miserable experiences. And let, let's try to rethink that, right? You know, it's not just the story of Texas's role in that imperial progress, but it's also about these sort of individuals, you know, I would say that that maybe Olmsted in, in some way is the is the most programmatic of the participants in a way. And you have Charles Wright, who, you know, starts off as a, a you know, he's making the first scientific botanical collections and sending them to Asa Gray in Harvard. So in some way, in the same way that that a lot of British traveling naturalists are not necessarily the most egregious of the colonial endeavor actors, but they are very much parallel to, to those actors. Charles Wright is is very much that. And later he goes on to create the border, you know, to be participate in the border survey. The interesting figure maybe is Sarah Ann Hardage, who comes here to deal in some land that she may or may not have. We really haven't been able to untangle whether she was swindled or not, and whether that, you know, the map that we have, that was her map that's on display, the people in the land survey here in Texas say that they've never seen such a map, and that the map is actually printed, uh, and not a blueprint, and not a drawing. And so maybe this is part of a, a kind of swindle that was going on. Um, and many people were sold this map. 
But her experience, you know, is is a really interesting one because she's not doing it with the same consciousness of an audience in the way that Audubon is because he's working on North American mammals when he's here. So he's already done birds and knows what the effect of that is. Uh, Olmsted, of course, is writing back for the New York Times and write as part of a larger institutional investment and later a government process. So Sarah Ann is, is just this, you know, is a sort of civilian in an interesting way. And her writing kind of reflects a much more personal experience. And the watercolors that she produced are, you know, where I don't think it was ever imagined that they would have a, as broad of a viewership as they're going to have in this exhibition. So they're very intimate and they're very domestic. And Just real, real quickly, what do those watercolors show? Some of them show places that would be important, like a ford across a river where there might be a, a, a ferry. A lot of them show homes and were painted for the owners of those homes. And that was one of the ways that she supported herself. You know, she came to look for this piece of land. It wasn't easy and it didn't seem to really exist. She had several children while she was here. Her husband somewhat abandoned her and, and gambled and drank a lot of the money that they had. And she ended up having to enter the homes of the of the growing new landed class here and teach their children painting and grammar and, uh, you know, essentially kind of move in and become the tutor. And so she had to find a way to make ends meet until she made enough money to move back to Boston. In some way, her, her story, you know, is as mortifying as Charles Wright's is in terms of the tribulations he, that she experienced. But, you know, she's she's not a public figure. And I think that makes her much more interesting. And, you know, and the, and the watercolors are a kind of revelation in that way. So to backfill a couple things, the map of the alleged possible, who knows, Hardinge family land claim is in the Eamon Carter's collection, as are the watercolors we were just, we were just mentioning. There are examples of all of these things in the book, and we'll have images on on manpodcast.com. Yeah. And I, you know, when Maggie brought me here, you know, the, the collection of, of the Sarah Ann Hardage watercolors was something in the collection that really hasn't, hasn't received the attention that maybe a lot of the other works that are here that are Texas based uh, have received. So she really wanted to find some way to get these out into public view, but at the same time, do something else, something, find another way to consider them. So that's what she brought me here to see the first time. And then we expanded the idea to include other Yankees who had traveled in Texas. So we're going to talk about um, Wright and Audubon and Olmsted in, 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 in these same terms. So you've just introduced us to Hardinge. How did you engage with her journey and search and uh, survival even as part of your project? Well, you know, one of, one of the aspects of this project is to try to come as close to the places where these people were and to see what's left, right? And so with Sarah Ann Hardage, we, we know pretty extensively where she was, and she was kind of in Hill Country and Seguin and, and San Antonio. So we could spend some time there, and we were able to actually locate one of the houses that is in her watercolor and a house that that has been preserved and it was actually the furthest western plantation house in the united states at the time she was staying there and in some way this painting she made even though her paintings are very you know they're very self-schooled they're they're very you know they're, they feel like someone who's really learning to paint and her later paintings i think we we see that this is the stage that the texas paintings are made in because the, the later ones are much more accomplished. But, you know, that that painting kind of puts this house on the map in a sense. So we're able to visit the house, which is which is currently being restored. So, you know, I've always been really interested in this idea of reenactment and restoration and how, you know, as a society, we're not always forward thinking. We're often think we're offered often looking backward, looking at that history and trying to really tease out what is it that makes people want to reenact events? What is it that makes people want to restore homes to one particular period or another? 
you know, I, I think that I'm trying to engage with that past in a way that's not nostalgic, right? In a way that nostalgia is not my motivation for thinking about these things. I, I'm interested in thinking about this, you know, from a kind of critical social history perspective. So it is important to try and for me to to kind of imagine during some of these travels that I can actually be in a spot where Sarah Ann Hardage was or where Olmsted was. I can look at Galveston Bay and compare that to what Audubon writes about Galveston Bay, which, you know, at the time Audubon's writing, he's even even him, someone who's who has seen a lot, is awed by the by the kind of uh, diversity of life and the uh, enormous bird life in Galveston Bay. The house you're referencing is called the Polly Mansion. Where there are pictures in the book, we'll try to get one or two of them for manpodcast.com. One of the pictures in the book shows a table in a room in the mansion that makes a nice rhyme for the style of display you engage with in, in your work. So that's Hardinge, Charles Wright. Charles Wright was a, a naturalist, a specimen collector. He, he acquired botanical samples across the North American continent and indeed in the Caribbean too, often returning them, sending them to Asa Gray at Harvard, who was the father of American botanical taxonomy, a guy who in many ways is, is the father of American science. Those of us who've written on the 19th century, he's one of those guys you just bump into all the time. Yeah, he's, he's a really important figure in that, in that story. Franklin Kelly, the curator and deputy director at the National Gallery, has a line about the 19th century and the interests of artists and their engagement with people like Wright that I think of a lot. Kelly writes that the investigation of the complex relationships between man and the natural world dominated the cultural life of the mid-19th century in a way perhaps unmatched by any other single concern. And we see that in his, and indeed your now, botanizing in West Texas. Key to Wright's project and to Gray's project was, was intense botanical and sometimes geologic specificity, which is not necessary in the same way today, perhaps. So how did you engage Wright's botanizing and sample collecting, given that you didn't need to redo exactly, of course, what he did 170 years ago. You know, I did travel with two scientists from Brit here. And so two people who are dedicated Texas botanical scientists who work in herbarium and and were extremely excited to collect in West Texas because they haven't really collected in West Texas before. We are, we are talking about extreme West Texas here, out by Guadalupe Mountains. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so, you know, for them it's really exciting and 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 fresh to be able to do that. And at the same time, you know, we didn't get the proper permits at, at the right moment. So we're also collecting on the side of the road. So you know, one aspect of Wright's endeavor is that it's complicated by the realities of his moment, right? He's having a very hard time traveling around. He doesn't have a horse at first, and he walks hundreds and hundreds of miles on his own. He needs, you know, when you're collecting specimens, it's a lot of stuff you have to carry with you. It's plant presses, it's paper, and if you're making a massive collection, all of that stuff has to be kept dry, and it has to be kept in the right conditions. He's relying very much on the traveling military who are engaged in, uh, you know, exterminating native people. And they have very little concern and regard for him and his and what he's doing. He's, he's absolutely dependent on their goodwill and often finds that they've taken his specimens and put them in conditions that completely ruin them, sometimes ruining months and months of work. So, you know, what, what are our conditions now? So one of the sites that we looked at is one of the sites that, that where there was a small trading post right on the border, right on the Texas side of the Rio Grande, uh, which now is a juncture of a, a vacant lot and a CVS and a Walmart. So we went to that site and, and collected there. And, you know, for the botanists, there was a surprising amount of exciting material. You know, in, in all of these places where I'm traveling, I have local hosts, right, who are helping me to see the landscape and interpret my surroundings in a way that I could never do as an outsider. And, and let me just jump in to point out that that's true to the way Olmsted traveled and indeed is part of your address of Olmsted. Yeah, in, 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 a, in a way, 
but he is he always is acting from a perspective of authority right even though there are people that he asks he you know he asks people for help he stays in people's homes but he always sort of comes off as the person who knows more than they do right so when i'm traveling with you know my friend gabe martinez in in houston or with eric snell in in galveston there's no way i know more than them not about this not about where they're living not about their situation not about anything so i'm trying to have a very different perspective when uh, when i'm traveling with uh, the comanche poet and artist juanita pedaponi you know i am you know i'm all ears i'm just really interested in listening to her and learning from her and understanding the very different way she sees comanche and european history clashing and the narratives that she tells, and she's a, a professional storyteller, are remarkably different from any narratives I've read. And, and the way that she sees the land and the way she talks about her people seeing the land is very different from the way Charles Wright or Olmsted see it. And so I'm trying not, you know, I'm trying to put my own, my own judgments in the in the back you know i'm trying to be a very different kind of traveler than some of these other people were i think that's that's one aspect of what i'm what i'm doing in this process her name is juanita padaponi her work is in the catalog is it in the show it's not in the show but it's in the catalog it's in the catalog we'll try to get images you know you mentioned this uncertainty wright had about what he would find and the newness of these things to him and how you were surprised how that sometimes also played out for 21st century botanists. In your Olmstedian diary, there, your, your metaphor for that, if metaphor is the word I want, is your experience of a certain Texas fast food chain. Oh, yeah, the, the Whataburger, yeah. Yeah, how'd that go? It, it's <laughs> funny because, you know, when we, we were out collecting buffalo gourds, you know, which is a, it's a, a large kind of sprawling plant that, crawls across the side of the road and culminates in these softball-sized gourds. And when we're sampling them, you know, taking, making a, the herbarium, we're cutting the plants and it, and the filmmaker said, oh, you know, this smells exactly like when you have Whataburger in your car <laughs> and you leave it and you, you leave the bag overnight. And so they kept talking about this this fast food chain, which I I kept hearing as water burger. I finally asked them, "What is a water burger?" And so everyone just shakes their head and looks at the stupid Yankee. <laughs> and then we drive into the parking lot and have our first water burger. So, well, what's especially great about that is throughout. Olmsted's book about Texas, he complains about the food like nobody has ever complained about anything before. Absolutely. So it's a, 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 a strikingly forward historical connection. Of course, if you'd really wanted to be like Olmsted, you would have worn like three jackets at once at all times. Um, I, you can understand that because the temperature shift here is dramatic in the course of a day, right? I, I think if you just spend one cold night out, you know, you really would uh, have a have a great deal of difficulty ever leaving us a layer behind. Let's pivot to Audubon. There are a number of Audubons um, and lithographs after Audubon in, in, in the show. I want to raise an 1843 Bowen lithograph after Audubon's, I'm going to mess up my pronunciation here again, sorry, Rosate, Rosate? Rosate Spoonbill, yeah. Yeah, so I, I imagine you saw Rosate Spoonbills because there's a picture in the book of several dozen of them that I vaguely imagine that, that you snapped on a camera phone. When you see something in an object from 1843 and then see that species in the 2010s while working on a piece on a project, what sorts of uh, associations and relationships go through your mind as you think about how to engage with the object and the species and the times and places? Well, you know, it's interesting because the, the Rosier Spoonbill you know, for me, is an incredibly exotic bird, right? I mean, it's, it is a, a great-looking bird. It's one of the most spectacular birds that, that live in the, in the country. And, you know, in my travels in South Florida, you know, I'll occasionally run across one or two. 
So being in, in Galveston and, you know, crossing over to an island and finding a rookery where there are literally hundreds and hundreds of roseate spoonbills vying for nest sites with snowy egrets and cormorants, and there are alligators swimming around just waiting for the fledglings to drop into the water. You know, this is an extraordinary view into maybe approximating what what Audubon saw. You know, very often when I look at Audubon and other artists from the period, people like Catlin, I think if I could only see that, and if I could only have that kind of experience of the exuberance of nature before the paved road, and there are these moments in travels like this where you really feel like you've obtained that. And for me, that's that's kind of extremely interesting. But at the same time, you know, the site that we're seeing it is not a pristine swamp. It's an island that has been made by the Audubon Society. And we're viewing these birds from perfectly built platforms constructed for the, by the Audubon Society to, uh, you know, allow this encounter with spectacular nature. So I think one of the important lessons in, in this work is that the idea of nature and the idea of wilderness are not synonymous in my, in, you know, in my practice, that I've always seen nature as something that exists sort of despite our better efforts to get rid of it. And I'm not that necessarily seduced by the notion of the of the pristine. You know, I, I want I like the idea that that one might see a roseate spoonbill in the parking lot as well. I think that that's very much the way I want to write about the way I want to think about nature and the and the kind of dynamic I want to have between that original print and my practice today. So to jump in with a couple things about that, the the. the differentiation between nature and wilderness and indeed landscape and wilderness is very much a 19th century engagement. You know, for Emerson writing in 1836, he specifically defined landscape, a word then pretty new to the English language, even newer to American English. You know, for, for Emerson, landscape was man-impacted nature, which was different from wilderness. And that usage of the word existed in the English, in American English for decades. Today, we tend to use them all interchangeably. So I think that's, at least for me, a really important and interesting point. You talk about the island in Galveston Bay as being artificial. You, I, I presume, pointedly, intentionally, cleverly, and, and really kind of hilariously collected shells in that area and kept them in a plastic grocery tub for a product called I Can't Believe It's Not Butter. Right. <laughs> you know, so a, 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 a winking reference to the artificiality of place in terms of um, the artificiality of margarine or whatever the heck that stuff is. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's always complicated, right, how the artists are interpreting these things. So, so if we think about Audubon, you know, he, of, of course, is shooting these birds, right? I mean, one of the awkwardness one of, the, one of the reasons for the awkwardness of the placement of birds on the paper is uh, in Audubon's Birds of America is that he is placing the actual carcass of the bird onto the paper and tracing around it to get the accuracy of scale, right? The, in the elephant folio, all the birds are meant to fit on the page you know, at, to scale. And so you have these very awkward moments where necks need to be contorted in particular ways so they fit the page better, right? But the very idea that, you know, we sort of um, look at Audubon and admire him as and, and see him as a kind of proto-conservationist at the same time, you know, he is shooting all of the birds that he's depicting and and perhaps the weakest part of Birds of America are, you know, are sort of the behavioral descriptions. You know, all, all of that, I think, is very, very different from the way people study birds today. Although, you know, the fact is that scientists still shoot birds by the hundreds when they go on collecting trips, which even though they're rare, they still happen. Yeah, and Audubon also sometimes drew animals that had already been taxidermied and where fur, fur and or feathers or whatever else had already fallen off as part of the taxidermy process or as part of, you know, just them having been standing around for a while. And so sometimes his, his views are puzzlingly inaccurate as, as a result. We've mentioned Olmsted a couple times. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the major engagement with Olmsted is indeed the book. The book, the book and the itinerary, right? So, you know, I mean, I'm really interested in, in 
Olmsted as a sort of travel writer, right? And, you know, I do think that travel literature, travel, you know, the, the sort of travelogue is one of the things that um, we do extremely well in the American genre. You know, if we go back to Lewis and Clark or William Bartram, you know, and through people like Olmsted, through Kerouac, through Pee Wee Herman, you know, there's just like a great idea of the travelogue the idea of the of the travel genre is is exciting but you know we don't really have much of a travel genre in sculpture so you know that's a big part of my process is trying to imagine what it would mean to be a be a travel artist but not a painter and not a photographer but a sculptor someone who works with material that's interesting is that kind of descended from your interest in smithson or would that go back further to the way an Italian sculptor, say like a Michelangelo, would travel to a quarry and select blocks? I think it has more to do with my sort of placement maybe with a, a toe in the world of collecting and scientific collections and an entire foot and a half in the world of art and, and with sort of collecting as being a, a, an important part of, of my medium and sort of my contribution to that history of, of art that's not really one about assemblage, right? It's not about taking everyday things and making them into something else. It's about having everyday things still stand for themselves, but creating a kind of context for them where they can be read as in, in a composition where they don't lose their integrity. Olmsted is making these trips through, through Texas in uh, the very end of 53 and in the beginning of 1854. And the other trips he makes for the New York Times that he turns into books to places such as the Mid-Atlantic as part of a process of figuring out what the heck he's going to do with his life. At this point, he's tried to do a couple things and hasn't really had the success he wanted. He's tried to be a farmer. He's tried to be a writer. He's tried to be a publisher, a magazine editor. And he was hoping these trips would, would not just be, you know, pay the bills, but would open up avenues to new ways of doing things in his life or ways of thinking that he might approach, might use to inform whatever he would do next in his life. Did any of this work that way for you? Was part of any of your interest having any of the same motivations that Olmsted had? Well, I, I think in the idea that I really didn't know so much what I would find, you know, I, I really wanted to be open to these experiences, you know, to not entirely overcode the trips with my own uh, sort of hopes and methodologies. At the same time, I'm, I'm conscious from the day I arrive in, in Houston that, you know, I have to materialize a project. So I have to be doing something, right? That there's going to be an exhibition at the end of this. And I'm not going to be able to come back to these places twice. Which is a hard, hard thought. As somebody who, who does research, that's a hard, hard thought. <laughs> and so you know you have to be productive. And so I'm trying to do that in all of the mediums I have access to. So, you know, I'm, I'm making watercolors. I'm taking photographs. I'm collecting things. I'm writing in my journal. And I don't know what the result will be yet, but I know if I don't have material, I'll have nothing to work with later on. So, you know, I, I'm definitely, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of struggling and I'm trying not to overcode the experience and anticipate what that something will be until I, until I go on later. You know, at the same time, you know, sometimes you have a day where nothing interesting happens you know, a, a day that's a, almost a total flop, or you have a day where you don't collect anything because you've shown up in February and plants aren't in flower, so you can't make a herbarium. There's no seeds to collect. You, you know, in a place like Galveston, there are very few places where you can actually get to the water. So collecting the kinds of things I often collect, garbage, <laughs> bits of bits of our landscape that have been enacted upon by nature, you know, a, a bottle that's coated with barnacles, you know, for me, that's the most exciting kind of thing to collect, a thing that reverses the the logic of the artificial and the natural that we've inherited from the Wunderkammer. It's not the, it's not the human imposition on the natural, but rather the natural imposition on the human. 
I, I should add that we will have links to Olmsted's Texas book on, on the show page. You can download it for free from Open Library and PDF or Kindle or whatever format you, you might want. It's a hard read, uh, Olmsted's book. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's, but it's a pretty fun read, too. Yeah, especially if you are in the place. And what, what's, what's interesting is Olmsted doesn't come through Galveston, which is where most you know, white, white Texans and African-American Texans who are coming to Texas all come through Galveston. And in the architecture of Galveston, you really see the imprint of New Orleans, you know, where they're coming from, even though, of course, Galveston is challenged because, you know, almost once a decade, it's wiped off the map by a hurricane. But it's still that kind of sense of New Orleans and sense of the South is is much more present in Galveston than in other parts of Texas I've been to. There is a gallery in the show with spectacular wallpaper. There is a long history of artists and artist aesthetes being interested in design, broadly speaking, from the arts and crafts movement and say uh, William Morris to, to Andy Warhol and Pink Cows, right? So speaking of cows, your wallpaper... <laughs> Yeah, my wallpaper has a long horn. That was, that was the that was the most difficult object um, because the team here felt like the original bull that I put on the wallpaper was not Texas enough. And so, you know, um, first they said, your cow isn't a Texas cow. And I said, my cow is a bull, first of all. And this is certainly a Texas cow. But then we get into a long discussion and, I, you know, as it's really clear in a project like this you have to struggle to avoid cliche right you have to you want to make a texas wallpaper you don't want that to be to contain the 10 images that everyone is going to associate with texas at the same time uh you know i have to defer to my collaborators and if they feel like we absolutely positively need a longhorn who am i to argue tell me why you wanted to do wallpaper, why, why, why that was of interest, or and indeed, I, I, I imagine fun. <laughs> well, I've done I've done a fair number of wallpapers. I did a wallpaper for my exhibition at La Laboratoire in Cambridge, that was a, a series of jellyfish images, and I've done one that was dedicated to the realm of the air. I did an extinction wallpaper for the Whitechapel uh, in London, and so, in some way. One of the ways that Maggie Adler and I want to make this exhibition distinct from the rest of the Amoncarta. You know, the Amoncarta looks marvelous right now. It's just been rehung. It's been it's been redesigned. The carpets have been taken out. The narrative has been tweaked in a much more sophisticated and complex way. And you know, but it's still quite classical in many ways. So we want this exhibition to feel dramatically different when you come through. So we have emphasized, you know, wall colors. The first section is blue, the, or green rather. The second section is blue. My section has a, a, a wallpaper. So without constantly having to remind you through text that you're looking at something different that is a, in, in some way a complex but cohesive argument is, is through the, the wall treatments. At the same time, I, I want it to be funny, right? I, I want it to, in some way, I want to use humor to attract people in so that they're not armored against the more critical aspects that they might find in the exhibition, right? I, I want to use humor as a way of, of disarming them and in some way shaking off their prejudices about what they might see when they think about contemporary art. And the wallpaper certainly is one thing that does that. And, and you know, and, and also in the same way that, you know, a, a simple example would be, you know, in the, in the center of the wallpaper, there's a, there's a rifle, right? So you would think the sort of cliche of the macho Texan rifle, but it's actually a BB gun. So anyone who looks at that and knows anything will recognize that it's a BB gun. So it's not this weapon of uh, eradication, but rather something that's a toy, a sort of gateway gun. When I mention the arts and crafts movement or Warhol's wallpaper, am I putting your wallpaper in the right lineage and context, or do you think of it in a different line? No, I, I think about it in, in, in that way. You know, I mean, I'm very 
you know, careful with with the color. I'm very, you know, I want it to create a kind of mood. I want it to produce a setting. You know, the the we worked very hard to get the the color, the ochre color of the background of the wallpaper, to um, you know resemble the um, soil specimens that are in the exhibition. You know, we wanted the red to be like the red of West Texas dirt, and we wanted the ochre to be like hill country soil. In closing, I want to pivot to uh, an exhibition not at the Eamon Carter, to something you've done since we last talked, specifically to an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art Toronto. You presented a dead tree, more specifically an autopsy of a dead tree, during which all of the life that the tree continued to support, even after the tree's death, was, was chronicled. You've long had an interest in forests, yes, but also in individual trees. Last time you were on the show, we talked about the Newcomb Vivarium at the Seattle Art Museum's Olympic Sculpture Park. There is a specific centuries-long art history around individual trees. There's the tree of life in Christian painting, the framing tree used by Claude and his centuries of adherence in their paintings, and of course, during the American Civil War, solid old individual trees, such as the grizzly giant in California's Mariposa Grove, which is a giant sequoia, became popular American symbols in poems and in art of the hoped-for endurance of the American Republican project, and indeed, of course, for the Union itself. This is all a far too long way of asking, is there a specific art history, one of these or another, uh, in which you think about your trees, your individual trees. Well, I, th- I you know, I, I am really interested in in that in the use of the tree and and in the use of the tree as as you as you mentioned these kind of symbolic trees, even the tree of liberty, you know, the charter oak, but also um, you know these these trees that are are graphs, you know, family trees and taxonomic trees. Uh, cladistics trees that you find in taxonomies, the trees, the tree of life that that helps us understand evolutionary relationships, and also trees themselves. And and you know I'm extremely concerned at this weird moment where we have uh, you know this sort of attack on trees from invasive organisms that is really going to change the composition of our forests. You know it has already, of course. So you know. The chestnut blight that was introduced, you know, dramatically changed the forest in eastern North America in, and Canada. So what we think about as as the composition of the tree, we know that, that chestnuts produce just a lot of fruit, right? And that fruit is food for a wide variety of animals that feed on it. Suddenly we have forests that where the chestnut disappears in 1900. And chestnuts were a significant part of that, part of a, a forest composition. So now we're facing a similar thing with a number of different organisms. The woolly adelgid that's affecting American hemlock trees, uh, eastern hemlocks, and the uh, emerald ash borer. So the tree that I introduced into the galleries in Toronto into the contemporary is is an ash tree that had died probably the year before and died because it was girdled by the emerald ash borer you know which is a is an insect that was introduced accidentally and has spread widely and has been devastating to the ash tree across north america but uh, especially in canada and and in the toronto area people are seeing their um, once healthy trees being cut down now. So why? You know, what is that? So this is a way of really kind of introducing into the gallery a kind of uh, opportunity for people to meet their meet their enemy in a sense. So we, I worked with entomologists and we would dissect this tree over the course of the exhibition, finding not just the emerald ash borer, but also dozens and dozens of other organisms that this tree supports, you know, who are not pernicious and who will have a hard time finding new homes now that ashes are, are gone. Is, is part of your hope in placing a tree and indeed scientists in an art museum or Kunsthall context that visitors will make the relationship between hundreds of years in trees in art they like and, and what is happening in our contemporary world? 
Yeah, I hope so. And and I and I think you know it's 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 yeah. My interest is really thinking about you know the the ecology that really creates our identity in a sense, and also having a um, a sort of perspective of how the kind of society that that we've privileged with you know has unforeseen consequences for the world that produces our very way of, of thinking and seeing. And, and, you know, we are very tied to our landscapes and to, and to our identity. And those landscapes are now changing dramatically because of international trade and, and capitalism in a, in, a, in a sense. But it's something that it's really hard to pin down. It's hard to put a face on. And I think a project like this is a way of trying to talk about that. At the same time, you know, I'm also trying to tease out what are the differences between an artistic approach and a scientific approach, and having that be something that I sus- sort of suspend an aspect of the of of being definitive of and allow the viewer to kind of come to their conclusions based on the supposition that the exhibition is. I think especially for people who who know your work, there's wonderful rhymes between your trees in Seattle and this project in Toronto and and the acquisition of entire trees as specimens, if you will, and the way Charles Wright exists in in the Eamon Carter show and the way you exist with him in Fort Worth. Mark Dion, thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's a great opportunity. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.